Hi, my name is Joe Jackson. I'm an interviewer and a broadcaster. And what you're about to hear is one of the 1,400 interviews I did for publications such as the Irish Times, Sunday Independent, Hot Press Magazine, and for RTE Radio 1. How do I know that there are 1,400 interviews exactly? Because I recently digitised all the damn tapes myself. But please remember that many of the interviews were done for the print media and recorded on cassette tapes. So some are, let's say, sonically challenged. But sometimes sonic considerations should give way to historical significance, I believe. And I'm glad to say that at least some powers that be in RT Radio 1 agreed with me on this and broadcast between 2015 and 2018 many of my interviews in a series called The Joe Jackson Tapes Revisited. What follows is one such programme edited for this podcast and minus music, which I can't use for copyright reasons. The full tapes can be accessed at joejacksoninterviewer.com. Either way, enjoy. Once upon a time, and a very good time it was, nearly every bedsit party you went to during the 1970s had one or all of these LPs. Tea for the Tillerman by Cat Stevens, Tapestry by Carol King, and either or both Sweet Baby James and Mudslide Slim and the Blue Horizon by James Taylor. I own them all excluding Sweet Baby James. But I first became aware of Taylor when I read the credits on the back of another album I loved at the time, Carol King's first LP, Writer. I noticed that James Taylor played acoustic guitar on all tracks and sang the beautifully aching backing vocal on the King classic Going Back. And speaking of backing vocals, who could resist the sound of Joni Mitchell harmonising with Taylor on his version of Carol King's Anthem for a Generation? You've got a friend. I certainly couldn't. So, 17 or so years later, in 1988, when I heard that James Taylor was in London promoting his latest CD, Never Die Young, and staying at the Halcyon Hotel, I flew myself over at my own expense, as was always the case when I wanted to interview one of my music heroes. But I was not prepared for the fact that James Taylor turned out to be such a bloody fascinating interviewee, or frankly, that he'd be so bloody difficult to interview at the outset. Then again, part of the problem was of my own making. I never believed in the journalistic ploy of keeping one's difficult questions to last. So I kicked off by asking Taylor about a quote he once gave, explaining why he was reluctant to get into self-revelation during interviews. Self-revelation, ultimately in the name of helping others to face similar truths, was always my goal for interviews. So the notion of Taylor holding back in that sense did not fill me with delight. But there's another layer to all this. James Taylor, who was born in Boston, Massachusetts in 1948, had his first hit in 1970 with his own song Fire and Rain, and first number one a year later with You've Got a Friend, was when we met at the end of a gruelling day of interviews, and tired. Either way, as you'll hear, it took him some time to tune into my, or rather our, frequency. But then, apart from the occasional backward step, we hit our stride, like a choppy duet between two dueling guitarists. Right, I went back to, to an old quote. Uh, you were talking about your, your uh, unwillingness to go too deeply into self-revelation in interviews. Remember that quote? I don't remember it, but it, it's, it's, I suppose it uh, makes sense. Although, you know, I mean, I don't think there's anything that I haven't mentioned yet in an interview that, that I, that I couldn't. Ahead. No, I think the main reason is that it's just, uh, you know, the, it's just sort of embarrassing to, to uh, you, you always have to strike a balance, I guess, is that it, it tends to be a little bit um, uh, tedious to hear people go on, you know, about themselves in minute detail. I mean, you know, don't, I don't want to be, uh, 
be boring or, uh, or, or uh, you know, inappropriately dramatic or, you know. Self-dramatizing. Well, yeah, I sort of, you know, you always, one, one appears to be uh, a lot more self-serving in, in, in interviews than you, than you might actually, you know, be. actually be or yeah. self-obsessed or something. Right. You know? Well, one argument is that kind of the nature, the intense autobiographical, encoded in quotes, nature of your songs leads people to have that interest in you, whereas they might not in a performer of a different style. I see, yeah, I, I can understand that, yeah. And it's like an occupational hazard? Well, yeah, it's not really, like, it's not uh, really so much a hazard, it's understandable. Right, yeah. okay. At this stage, yes, I was glad I'd taken an evening course in dentistry, if only because, as you can hear, talking with Taylor, to begin with, did make me feel like I was pulling teeth out of the mouth of a person with their mouth closed and sitting in another room. Either way, at this point, I hit him with another bland, easy question. I told Taylor that I remembered that during his most recent concert at Dublin Stadium, when someone shouted out, we love you, James, he responded by simply saying, love, in a way that to me sounded sarcastic. Was it? Oh, I didn't. Uh, that was just no. meant to be a joke, was it? Yeah, sure, just entirely a joke. Uh, it wasn't. Uh, it know. wasn't all romantics end up the same way. No, Coach no. Only bitter and questioning. Would you question know yeah, the nature right. of the feelings fans have for you? No, I don't. I don't. I don't question question that. I mean, I think that that uh, uh, the only thing I would question is if, if people took their feelings about me too seriously. Um, I think that it's pretty. You know, I mean, basically, uh, I suppose I, I, I tried to express myself uh, uh, in depth sometimes, but basically it's just entertainment. I mean, it's not meant to be any kind of crucial lesson or, or really pivotal, deep uh, thing. I, I, I don't think people should take what I do too seriously, and I, I try not to take it too seriously myself. It, it's, it's only rock and roll. You know? At the best, it's only rock and roll. But music can be central to many people's lives. I mean, it could have been central to your life as, as when you were younger. When sure. You were young, yeah, it is. It still is. It is, but, you know, it's, uh, I, I still, I, I, I'm skeptical of, of, uh, of uh, people who, who take it too seriously, I think. It's like you get too near the kind of Mark Chapman, John Lennon area of obsessiveness. Well, that, yeah, I suppose that's, uh, that's one possible. If it goes too far possible extreme of it you know I mean I, I get uh, letters from some people who I think are crazy whose uh, uh, focus on me and uh, and compulsion uh, that I'm the center of you know seems to me to be inappropriate and not necessarily dangerous occasionally yeah. someone will write who clearly has uh, listened to my songs and has uh, worked it into some really crazy uh, you know perspective distorted sort of meaning to yeah. herself you know yeah. it reminds it is a little bit reminiscent of uh, uh, Mark Chapman or or uh, Helter, Helter Skelter and oh, right. you know, Manson yeah. and Helter Skelter. Yeah. yeah. But does that frighten you ever? I mean, do you feel I don't want to be part of these forces? This is not healthy, or this is. I don't. I gen generally speaking, if I feel some someone is, uh, uh, I I try not to respond. I just don't. I don't write back and say you've got it all wrong. You shouldn't take it this seriously. It wasn't specifically directed at you, and it's only rock and roll. I just wait for it to blow over. On the other hand, a more positive reaction is that when listeners kind of get the shock of recognition from your work, where they say you've articulated something that they have long since been trying to articulate. Yeah, that's. Uh, I think that's uh, very uh, reassuring, and it's nice to to. Uh, it's it's gratifying for me to hear from people that I've meant 
something to them or that I've uh, helped them uh, sort of, uh, I've, I've helped clarify in their mind something that they were feeling. But if a woman writes me and says that I'm controlling her menstrual cycle, you know, I get a little bit, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's different. Who, as a, a lyric writer or a songwriter, would have done that for you when you first started listening to music, giving you that shock of recognition in folk and rock and pop, whatever? I guess um, Randy Newman, uh, Bob Dylan. You know, it it also it that it is a lyric writer. Um, uh, you know, uh, Lennon McCartney, Leonard Cohen, Joni Mitchell. Going back, we'd say to your to your childhood and 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 early teens, they would not have been uh, operating. Who then? Uh, like if no, you, wrote, you wrote nobody your really nobody really uh, uh, that I heard who was really uh, um, expressing what I was feeling sort of in, internally, you know, and, right. and uh, sort of help me uh, uh, organize my thinking or sort of made something coalesce for me in my mind. In terms of writers of novels or, or poetry, perhaps beyond just songwriting, would there have been those? Um, yeah, sure. Such as? Now these pauses were beginning to make me feel like I was watching a play by Samuel Beckett, say, Crap's last tape, or maybe more so in this case crap first tapes. But at this very moment, James Joyce, my favourite Irish writer, came to my rescue in the sense that talking about his books, such as Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, seemed to snap Taylor into a more vocal mode. Maybe after 20 years talking about the musicians who'd influenced him and this tour promoting his latest CD and talking mostly about music, this simply was more fun for the man. You know, I, I guess uh, when I read James Joyce, I've, I identified... Uh, us strongly. Portrait of the artist. Portrait of the artist in Dublin. Dubliners too. Yeah. Why? When I was a kid, I just uh, I, you know they were. Uh, Did you hate the church, Catholicism, and all those things? And I wasn't. Uh, I I wasn't uh, I brought up Catholic and didn't have any exposure to Catholicism. And in fact, um, I suppose uh, James Boy Joyce's writings about it were were uh, as much an early uh, exposure as I ever had. So they brought it into focus for you. Those, those, well, portrait of the artist in particular. Well, no, I. What this was by way, this by way of saying mostly that uh, the identification that I had was more on uh, just. Uh, it, it wasn't in terms of my feeling about religion, just in empathizing with, uh, you know, feeling as though somebody was expressing things on the same level that I was feeling. Has this, has this got to do anything with the kind of Oedipal kind of situation? You referred to that once in one of your interviews, that a kind of father-son conflict or father-son looking for the father, as in, I'm taking moving now into a Ulysses. Have you read those? those no, I haven't, read, I haven't read Ulysses. But there's the theme, too, in Portrait of the Artist. There's always that tension, going back to kind of Greek mythology between the father and the son. Would you I have tuned into I'm those? I'm not aware of, uh, of, of uh, statements or feelings that I have about Oedipal conflict as necessarily originating or being particularly clarified by my feelings about Joyce's writing. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that those are inevitable central themes in uh, any sort of uh, sensitive young man's thinking. I mean, I think that that just is one of the natures of, uh, of, of, of growing up. Part of the nature of growing up. Isn't it telling how galvanised Taylor became at that point? Now we were on a roll. But let me say something about the next section. When I mentioned that before the interview, Taylor told me that there was nothing particularly traumatic about his childhood, I meant he told me that during our chat about why he was wary of going too deeply into self-revelation, 
which was a section of the interview I edited heavily for this programme. During that chat, he'd also quite rightly gotten a dig at interviewers, and this would later become a point of conflict between us, who seemed to want to talk only about his marriage to Carly Simon, heroin addiction, and the time he spent in mental institutions. But I suggested that many fans may be interested in at least the latter subject, if only because it's well known he wrote Fire and Rain while institutionalised. Either way, here's a potted history of Taylor's life in terms of two, not three, of those key areas. In 1965, at the age of 17, having become increasingly disorientated and depressed, James Taylor committed himself to McLean Hospital in Boston, where he was treated with Thorazine, which it said helped restore his sense of time and structure. A year later, while gigging in the village in New York with his band Flying Machine, James began using heroin and wrote Rainy Day Man about his addiction. In 1969, he committed himself to the Austin Riggs Centre in Massachusetts, which explored the influence of cultural and historical factors on psychiatric disorders. A year later, Taylor released Sweet Baby James, which included Fire and Rain, a song that tells of his time in such institutions and tells of the suicide of his friend, Suzanne Schneer. Now, back to the interview. He said there was nothing too extreme or too, too harsh about your own upbringing when you talked before the interview, but that you didn't have traumas that were in any way excessive or no more than 90% of young people would have. I wouldn't think so, no. Not that I, not that I have access to. Not that, I mean, there may be... Uh, you can't tell how people see things, and you can't tell, you know... I mean, there are people I know who have suffered amazing trauma as children and, uh, and as adolescents who seem to be uh, quite uh, confident and quite secure and quite well-centered at the, at the middle of their own lives. Mm -hmm. um, and there are other people who seem to have had everything and who uh, nonetheless seem to be completely lost and not have a sense of, uh, of self or of, uh, of center or of direction at all, you know, who seem to be almost by definition and by nature seem to be lost. So there, it's a mystery to me what, what causes uh, difficulty in people's lives and, and what makes for strength. You did uh, do psychoanalysis. You were psychoanalyzed. And no, I've never you? been psychoanalyzed. I've been in psychotherapy a number Psych of different times in my life. Yeah. Did they help? No, I, I. You know, that's one of the things about psychotherapy. You never know if it's helping or not. It's not one of those things where you go into it and suddenly everything is better, or yeah. you uh, and you discontinue it and suddenly things are worse. It seems uh, to me uh, arguable that I would be in exactly the position I'm in now uh, without psychotherapy. It may well have been a waste of time. I enjoyed it. But self-analysis has been a pattern in your life always, hasn't it? Yeah. I working it through your songs now. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. And you feel that has helped? If you hadn't had that, perhaps you may be more entangled? It's something that I feel compelled to do. I don't necessarily defend it. I think that perhaps in my case, I'm a little bit too self-involved. You know, It does some, seem to be something that, that I'm compelled to do. Well, in, the, in, in one of your earlier songs, Hey Mister, he did write about the artistic dilemma of a performer who makes a living recycling his traumatic experiences, to quote one article. Yeah. Some would say that you are blessed to be able to do that, to have perfect strangers pay good money to hear fire and fire and fire again. Okay, sorry for the interruption, but yes, there I did say fire and fire and fire again. Obviously, I meant to say fire and rain again and again. And you may wonder why when I met my hearers, I tended to interrogate them. Well, sometimes I did so just to see if they had feet of clay. Anyway, back to James Taylor and my suggestion that he was in a way blessed that people would pay to hear him sing fire and fire and fire again. Yeah, it's true. Um, they say that anything that doesn't uh, um, 
that doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I'm not sure that's entirely true, but uh, I hope it is. You know, I think the ways that, that uh, I'm not saying that suffering is art or that art needs you to suffer, um, but I, I am saying that, uh, that often uh, the way that we respond to adversity is, uh, uh, can be very creative, you know, and, can, and it can be, you know, adversity can be a great motivation, you know, and uh, finding your way out of things or, deal, or dealing with things. I mean, that's, I think that's, music can be either remedial or celebratory, right. either way. Some people do different things. So you're using what could be a destructive force in a kind of positive, hopefully constructive way. You or you're engaging a constructive force in dealing with something that's negative, perhaps, you know, yeah. and, uh, and if you can exhibit that somehow or express it, it, it can mean a lot to, to you or to other people. On a personal level, on Baby, baby Boom Baby, you, who did the lyric for that? Um, myself and uh, Zach Wiesner, yeah. Right. Zach but, and I wrote uh, Rainy Day Man, too, and we're, he's, he played bass in The Flying Machine, and oh, it's yeah, a, yeah. an old and dear friend of mine. Yeah. All right, okay. Well, one of the lyrics is kind of saying that dragging, uh, drag out the past just to paint it blue again. On a personal level or an emotional level, mightn't all that reliving of old pains keep you locked at its mercy rather than help you rise above it? Well, I think to a certain extent it's true, yeah. Um, if you're successful, especially if you're successful at doing something, people tend to, it tends to freeze you at that moment a little bit. And I, I'm, I'm aware of that. You know. Could it not be emotionally damaging though too? Well, I suppose a lot of things are emotionally damaging. I, I don't think, somehow, I don't think that you can really be damaged past the age of seven. I don't know why I feel that, but I, I, I just don't, I, I think that if you, you know, if you survive long enough, things can't damage, you just can't be damaged by things like that. You know? So you definitely believe in child being father to the man, uh, the earlier shape at all? Yeah, I, I, do, uh, uh, I do tend to believe that, um, that what happens early in your life, uh, um, and in some, in some cases on a cellular sort of genetic level, very much dictates who you're to be, and that you've, you know, that you, that you pretty much got your whole hand dealt to you by a, a pretty early age. You know, you might find inventive and creative ways, or might be pre-armed or pre-equipped with uh, inventive or creative ways of dealing with whatever your hand might be, but... Um, Would you say then that people are genetically predisposed to depre depression or schizophrenia or neurosis or those, those things that, that that is? I think that there are genetic predispositions to those things, and it's very difficult to know uh, where... Um, behavior and genetics and, uh, you know, where they diverge and, uh, you know, it just seems so, uh, so whimsical uh, and, and happenstantial, a hazard, hazard, uh, you know, sort of hazardous a kind of a, a thing, just uh, like the toss of a coin, whether people will rise or sink under a, under a certain burden or a certain, uh, in, in the face of a certain test, just no way to know. Do you feel you were genetically predisposed to depression? Um, I have felt that. It started quite young. Well, I don't think, uh, I think depression uh, is, is, uh, is a response to something. I don't think that it is something in itself. I think that it's a, uh, it's a way of coping with something. I think it's, uh, unfortunately, it's a way of closing down, of shutting down. Um, I, and it indicates that's, that there is something uh, on an emotional sense, I suppose that the, on a brain chemistry sort of level, there may be such things as physiological depressions, you know, someone who, yeah. who just uh, has 
uh, doesn't have an, enough uh, norepinephrine or something in there. Who knows what the right. brain chemical is, but. But I think from a, uh, on, a, on an emotional uh, level, I think that if people are depressed, to me, it, it indicates that there is something that they're incapable of coping with and incapable of, of getting rid of at the same time, sort of a, a resident um, conundrum yeah. that, uh, that, re that, requires, that, that, that sooner or later requires them to shut down, and they do. But a manic depression is, is someone reacting to perhaps something that isn't. You know, I mean, a legitimate depression is a reaction to a stimulus that's there, which which is healthy. Oh, well, well you know no, no, I, 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 to me, uh, a neurotic uh, condition of uh, depression uh, indicates reacting to something that was perceived uh, sometime in the past, but which no longer is appropriate. Right. That's what makes it neurotic. I think if someone is 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 uh, under uh, a present on a situation in which they can't cope, but something that is actually happening in present time. Right. You know, the death of a, of someone who they love, uh, with uh, withdrawal from uh, from a, dr a drug they've been addicted to, uh, uh, stress because of an attack of some sort. You know, something very much present and identifiable in their life. Then I don't think it's an, a neurotic reaction for right. them. To, then it's just uh, cause and effect. You became depressed with say in school, didn't you? And you signed yourself into a mental hospital when you're in your mid-teens. Yeah. Were they to, to a natural stimulus at the time, or would they have been the other kind of influences you've just mentioned? I think a combination of, of yeah. the thing. Yeah, the two. And you fought back by starting to write songs at that stage, did you? Um, yes, yes, that's right. I think it's about that time that I, that I started to write songs. And I think that, that to a certain extent, those early songs were uh, either a way of escaping or a way of exp uh, escaping from uh, uh, those uh, feelings or a way of expressing them. Do you ever regret that you admitted that a lot of the earlier songs were written when you were in a mental institution, that it stigmatized Well, they you? weren't a lot of the, uh, only a couple of songs were, were written in, in actually in a mental institution. You know, it's one of the things about, again, we started by talking about the nature of uh, a celebrity press or, you know, this type of interview. I think one of the things about it is that uh, you uh, one tends to try to find things in your own life to offer in an interview situation, which will be of interest and which will seem uh, uh, sensational. You know, so you tend to f again focus on things like drug abuse or emotional mm -hmm. difficulty or stuff. I, you know, I I just don't think of any of it as really being that big a deal. Yeah, um, but to people who are, as I said earlier, my argument earlier was to people who are tuning into your songs on that level, that's the James Taylor they know and the James Taylor they care about and are interested in. You know, I be they the heightened the... moments of reality, such as we're discussing now. Yeah. Especially if they are the moments that then led to the art or the song or the music. You yeah. know, it legitimizes. It's, it's not, I don't, I think sensationalist might be an unfair word. You know what I mean? I think it's a, it's, it's a craving for two people to communicate, one to communicate through another one to an audience or readers. Yeah. If, you've, if you're real interested, as I have in what I'm doing, mm -hmm. you know, rather than trying just to get sensational material which can be used in another way. All right, no, I'll, I certainly I mean? will grant you that. I agree. I agree well, that, 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 that it is. Um, but let, then okay, back I'll to your go, question, which was, uh, do I feel as though I, I, I set myself up Stig by admitting that? Stigmatized or stigmatized. Yeah, yeah I have felt that. Okay, I, I have felt that, that uh, in concentrating on that, people uh, uh, had an inaccurate view of who I was. They see the you that was then 22 years ago. Well, you know, and also uh, they, uh, I, I tend to be, uh, to have been uh, sort of typecast as uh, 
sort of relentless, relentlessly introspective and uh, you know super sensitive or you know romantic. And I, and I, yeah, I, I don't think that that's uh, that people who know me well personally would describe me that way. Okay, the regressive dimension to fame you referred to when you said you become a spoiled child when you become a pop star. Remember you said that? No, I can't remember saying that, but I, I think there's. Uh, Truth, a truth in it. There's a certain amount of truth to it. Okay, would that mean then that, that you and many of your contemporaries might be emotionally, intellectually, or psychologically immature? I, 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 I suppose it depends on how you're going to judge it. By whose standards? And by yeah, by whose standards. I mean, you know, the standards uh, that, that seem to maintain now in, uh, in Western culture are not very high, you know, in terms of emotional maturity or how evolved people are. Or how much of a model there is for people to actually become adults and to try to uh, to achieve some kind of continuity in their lives and some sort of uh, cohesion between the, you know. So you think we've all regressed? Um, to yeah, a, a sure. lower state of, of uh, judging or. Well, you know, I've never lived in another time, so I couldn't really say for sure. But uh, I, I, uh, you you don't see very many role models, uh, at least in the United States, and certainly not in popular culture in the United States. Uh, you don't see, there's not access to much in the way of, uh, of uh, what people of substance. Well, how, how, to, uh, how to really progress or, or you know, yeah, the, those just aren't, aren't uh, at this particular point, right. those aren't values that are, that are th those aren't attributes that are judged very uh, valuable. What's judged valuable now is, uh, is uh, action and youth and, uh, and action, youth, beauty and sex. And, you know, those are, and money and, uh, you know, and power. And, those are valuable things. There's no doubt about it. They're compelling. You know, the, all first of those brace, the first brace of those things could be listed as a consequence of the advent of rock culture. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that you know, rock culture isn't only about those things. But it shifted a focus onto those things which wasn't there before in our society or in any society, onto youth, sex, speed, well, action. Oh, I don't know that, that they weren't in any in any society. I don't know what it was like in uh, in the declining years of the Roman Empire, but well, my okay, guess okay, is it would okay. be pretty similar. pretty much similar. Yeah. All right, okay, yeah. I agree with that. All right, the But I'm, you know, I, I again, I don't want to uh, to come off being too puritanical here. I'm just making a statement. I'm not making a judgment about right. it. I think sex, drugs, and rock and roll are great. I stuck with them as long as I possibly could, and I intend to stick with sex and rock and roll. You know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You, st you intend to stay with sex and rock and roll. Yeah. You can't disassociate one from the other, can you? No, well, you can't. You know, sex is everything. <laughs> sex is in, is is everything and is in everything. I mean, it's the uh, it's the it's the life and in, in uh, it's the life force and motivation. No, you wouldn't want to. But you know, but one doesn't want to become when people when when I when I uh, uh, speak in a disparaging way of people's pre, uh, um, uh, preoccupation and uh, compulsion with sex. I don't. I. I, I actually mean the, the, the way they limit their, uh, their experience of what is sexual in this world and what it is. I mean, if sex may be the close, you know, only everything is everything. No other certain thing, single thing, is everything. Right. But sex, of all the th single things there are, comes the closest to being everything that any other single thing does. Right. You know, if only everything is everything, sex is the next closest thing to being everything. But... I think, uh, you know, people have a very narrow uh, a fixation on what sex is, and they just re return to that over and over again on two, it, 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 with, with a, a sort of a single-minded, simplistic, uh, re repetitive kind of uh, uh, narcotic, addictive, you know, repetition. You know, it, it, it's much more. To basically the, the act of coupling or the act of 
uh, to, yeah, I guess uh, basically to fucking or to an allusion to fucking, uh, you know, a, a certain uh, approach to it, kind of first kiss mentality, you know, over and over and over again. I'll tell you, there's something about um, narcotic culture, you know, um, uh, pop, pop culture, which I acknowledge that I'm a part of. I know that I'm a part of it, and I'm I, I'm only going to judge it so much. But there's something ab about it that turns, um, you know, we are uh, one way of looking at, of us or organizing our thinking about ourselves is that we are sensory uh, uh, combinations of sensory apparatus that uh, that that navigates through life, and that we use uh, our senses and our perceptions and our our ways of uh, of being conscious of things. We. We, I think those things somehow were meant to uh, contribute all together to a sort of, uh, uh, perhaps to a consciousness of, of, of who we are or what the world around us was, uh, or to at least, at the very least, to help us navigate through, through life and through the world, you know. Right. But since our, 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 uh, we as collections of sensory uh, organs uh, in a narcotic uh, culture and pop culture context, these things are just looked as receptors that are to be fired off as often as possible. I mean, if I go to see a movie and I feel as though I'm being my my uh, my emotional connection with it is just something that is being prepared and then fired off and then prepared and fired off with a certain uh, sort of pornographic uh, frequency, you know. Okay, well he can recover in five minutes and then we'll do it again, right. and then we, and he'll recover in fifteen minutes from this kind of catharsis and we'll do it again. You know, it turns the uh, those those uh, sensory uh, things into the end in themselves, just something that is fired off over and over again. You know, so he thinks that's what has fed into our limiting the potential of what sexuality really is or could be or should be. That's one of the things that happen. It happens with sexuality, but it also happens with the sort of emotional. Uh, uh, when we watch uh, a television show or a movie, you know, more and more the things that we are offered are just ways of stimulating and firing off these sensory uh, uh, responses. It could be also seen as elements of control. Well, you know, that's the point. That's the whole point. It's, it, it takes us away from, uh, from living mm -hmm. by preoccupying all of those uh, senses. A nostalgia or yearning to go back is a recurrent theme in your work, do you? I suppose I must, yeah. To to a time of greater innocence or of what? To a childhood itself? I suppose in, in this most recent album you're thinking about uh, Runaway Boy. Yeah. I, um, I don't know if it's a return to childhood or uh, just uh, um, a, a wish to sort of reclaim more time and, you know, for personal reasons. To lead, to lead a life that seems more connected to, uh, to uh, a meaningful reality rather than just uh, a succession of, uh, of engaging uh, uh, requirements or, uh, in, you know, say a succession of things that sort of draw your attention and eat your time. You know, I don't, that's how you have your life completely eaten up. Right. It's going you... from one thing that you try to cope with to another, you know, from one engagement to another. Would you ever yearn to go back to childhood? Um, no, I don't think you don't, so. But many people do, do have that kind of, uh, well, you know, intrinsic yearning. No, what my to. yearning for is to get out of childhood. Yeah. Yeah, quite to the, quite to the contrary. Well, I that was want, the question I was going to I don't for. want to go back, I want to come forward. Yeah, because many people tend to idealize the past. A nation can do it, a country can do it, America could be doing it at the moment, and forget the pain. You know, yearn to go back to days of what, what is called greater innocence and forget, but these are the days that fucked us up, or me up. 
Yeah, oh, no, no doubt about it. And I agree, uh, uh, America has sort of had an orgy of, uh, of denial uh, for, for the past eight years. But um, uh, well, how do you no, I, I feel as though one of, the, uh, one of the things that one can hope for uh, as you get older is that your life becomes more about what your own choices are, what your own decisions and your own, uh, the things that you've arrived at are. And uh, it becomes less and less about the sort of initial hand that you were dealt. You once seemed angry that your parents seemed to force you to perform or to be a performer. Oh, I don't think they forced me. I, I don't know where I might have given that impression, I, I, but I'm sorry that that's the case. No, they were extremely tolerant about. Were they? Oh, I, I see what you mean by perform. No, I hadn't mean, meant that in terms of performance art. Yeah. I think that if I said that, I meant in terms of uh, acting for the mother to win her affection. Was that the context? It may have been. Uh, yeah. It, it, when your I think I away. didn't mean so much uh, performing. I think I meant behavior. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know. In yeah. other words, that the important thing is is how you behave and what your effect on other people is, rather than something more more personally or self-affirming. But it ties in with what you were saying, like that your actions or your acting was dictated by the fact that you were trying to please or trying to win acceptance or love from. Well, I think that you could extend that, that into an audience. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's Some right. performers, if you want to use that word. Our, our look on the yes. audience as an extended family. No, I, I think that's entirely true. That uh, one of the one of the things that goes into making a, a performer's uh, sort of personality uh, can quite easily be that that need for you know that constant uh, insatiable need for approval and to be validated by other people expressing approval of them. Yeah. You know, Lenny Bruce joked about it that everyone's going around saying, "Hey, look at me, ma. Hey, look at me, dad." Yeah. You know, for what he was doing, he admitted at 41, he was still up there on stage. stage. And well, I think we all do it forever, you know, but uh, it's a matter of balance, like all things, you know. But shouldn't there come a point where you don't have to, you can just look in the mirror and say, hey, look at me? Well, there, it, it, again, it's a, it's a matter of, uh, of balance. But you're no longer, you wouldn't still be tap dancing for your mother's affection or whatever now? Well, I'm sure I am. I mean, I'm sure that that makes a, uh, that would be an early model of what I'm doing now, to a certain extent. No, I don't think, that's what I mean to say, I don't think we ever completely come away from that. But you're more in control now. You would be more in control of the impulse to do that now than, than allowing it to be dictated by back there, Umuto. Yes, I think so. Uh, you know, or at least you find a, a, a version of it that works in the present. You know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. we may still be those same people forever, you know, that we were back then. It's just that we're larger and more powerful and more, and then we become more evolved and, you know. That. I, for one, certainly hope is true, namely that we continue to evolve until the day we die, if not beyond it. And by the way, I usually did have a very tightly structured, typed out set of questions for these hot press Q&A interviews, which I rather pretentiously saw as one act, two hander plays complete with conflict. But when I met someone as fascinating as James Taylor, I went with the flow. But next up, I did ask him a question I had typed out, and I hope it doesn't offend any listener. I asked if there was an element of self-romanticization to his decision to institutionalize himself. Okay, there was one accusation. I don't uh, that that kind of that that whole that it was fashionable and hip to kind of uh, to be to sign oneself into a mental. It was very romantic. The romantic poet. Was there ever an element of the pose to it? Um, I uh, your own perception of what a. No, I I think I think it was uh, an important thing for me to do at the time, and I think that it was justified. Yeah. Um, I worried about it uh, as being just a way of sort of copping out. I, I don't think I ever looked at, at it as, as an attractive thing to do. 
But um, I did, uh, at that time, worry about it as a cop out. Would you have seen your exploration of drugs the same? Uh, I think, I think in the beginning, drugs were uh, exhilarating, and uh, I thought of them as my friend. And they actually even may have been my friend. You know, I mean, I I don't think that's a very popular thing to say now. Um, nor do I, in any way, encourage people to to take drugs or experiment with them. But in the beginning, they they were a thrill for me and a great relief. And then, shortly after that period of time, they became uh, a real waste of time. I mean, I, I, I think I wasted a good 10 years just, you know, treading water at, at best. I'm lucky I didn't ruin my health. If, if your children came back to you and said, how can you justify the claim that drugs could be a friend? Or if they took a similar path, how would you justify the fail? I don't know. I, 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 would, I would feel that it was most unfortunate if, uh, if, if or when either of my children decides that they, uh, you know, Sides. It's not a decision you sort of consciously make. I think right. I'll become a heroin addict. I mean, but uh, um, not strategic either. <laughs> no, it's not a very <laughs> not if you have any sense at all. But uh, you know, I I would think that that would be unfortunate, but not uh, not unbelievably unlikely. I mean, it's you know uh, that drugs are, are everywhere, much more available and much more acceptable now. Much more sort of pressure, peer group pressure, as they call it for uh, kids to take drugs, and uh, I, I don't know how you would I, I would or will react. Um, would you feel you had failed as a father in any way? I've told uh, um, my kids that I think it's likely that they'll be exposed to drugs and that they'll experiment with them, yeah. and that, I, that uh, my experience of them is that they're a waste of time and that they're dangerous to play around with, but uh, that these are things people have to find out for themselves. And the most important thing that I would hope is that they would continue to communicate with me about them and not let them, not, not let drugs uh, turn them away from me, you know. I think they understand uh, that things have gotten a lot better for me and for us as a uh, family. As, as, uh, yeah, as a family in my recovery from drugs. I think they're, they, you know, that's, and I think that's probably the most worthwhile thing I can offer them is that I just don't do it. Was there a moment? Was there an experience which made you say in one No, there, sharp... were, there were many such moments. There, was, there were 10 years, there were 15 years of such moments. And it just, it, there comes a point uh, where you just, it becomes, uh, finally it gets hammered into your head that uh, what you're doing is not fun. This was kind of cocaine, opium? I, I'm, I've been mostly an opiate addict. Yeah. Yeah, for my career. Opiates. Was there an element of the anesthetic? No doubt about it. Moving beyond the kind of time in the institution into high fame or whatever, to just dull everything to escape, to get away from it, to not feel it? Um, uh, I don't know. No, I think what I was see seeking was comfort uh, and not oblivion. And it ceased being fun when it moved from one to the other? Well, no, I, I, it just, uh, there are a number of, you know, the, there are numerous things. That, there's only one thing about drugs that are good, and that's that it has a sensation of, of, of relief for one, perhaps euphoria, perhaps comfort, but of relief of some sort. And there are many things about it that are, that are bad. I, and I think the worst thing of all is that it's just a waste of time, that you never do anything. That what you about in terms of creativity? Did you do anything? Did you write many of your songs with many of the lyrics we all know? A lots, lots of them were written high. You know. So, and you're saying that you don't, that's, was that a waste of time? I, you know, who knows what would have happened without them? Well, you know. I mean, you've been writing since then without them. Well, but I, I'm, I'm not writing as an 18-year-old man without them. As, True. As a 20-year-old. Yeah. I mean, 
I don't know what, you know, I can't, I can't rewrite what happened to me and I can't yeah. change what my life was or has been, nor would I want to. I mean, if I got rid of those, perhaps I would court some other form of uh, disaster. You know, so. Would your father have regarded it as a failure that, that, that you were using those or that you signed yourself into an institution? Um, I think it, I think he must, I, I've always assumed that he must have on some level, you know, I have uh, have wondered about what his uh, part in it might have been. Um, but sure. you know, I've I've had I've had successes in other areas, you know, too, and I think he he might feel proud of those. Would you have told him about that? Did you have good communication? No, not terribly good communication. I think that may have been one of you know could easily have been a contributing factor. But it's not only communication with them; it's communication with with, with no within yourself, oh, yeah, yeah. being able to to. Uh, to actually recognize and accept things, you know, I think that, that you can't communicate with other people about problems until you can sort of isolate them or, or recognize them or accept them in yourself. Be, at least be conscious of them on some level. I think yeah. that's the first step to trying to communicate something. Not only, uh, and not just going to somebody with a problem. So I've seen you described as Rock's equivalent of Keats. That's nice. Yeah. Were you ever in love with these from death? I don't know it. No, that's the quote of the poem, where it's kind of the romantic image of, of the, the poet suicide being a very attractive peaceful death. alternative. No, I know. I, I don't. I I'm, I I thought that it was a a quote of, of Keats, but I don't. Oh, it is know a quote. The... Yeah, I, I have been half in love with peaceful death. He wrote it to uh, Fanny Fanny Braun or his lover. Would you Would you have ever been attracted to that impulse to suicide? You know, I think everybody contemplates it, contemplates suicide at one time or another. Don't you think? I yeah. suppose there are some people who don't. Yeah. And did you? Yeah, when I was a kid, when I was, you know, when I was an adolescent. In a serious way, or the way as you say most. Well, it was it was serious of... enough to frighten me. I'm not sure how and, and and how much peril I was. I mean, I did do something about it, other than kill myself. Asher, there's nothing like having a light-hearted chat with one of your pop heroes. And if you're thinking that this is nothing like a light-hearted chat, then listen to this little exchange. Yeah, we're getting to the last application, getting tired. How are you feeling? I'm doing great. Right. This is fun for me. <laughs> okay, good. So, you see, that was fun to James Taylor, whose sense of humour obviously is as mad as mine. But the man clearly didn't have fun later when I finally raised the subject of Carly Simon. He'd said he believes it's better to have had multiple romantic and sexual relationships rather than, say, settle down and marry at 18. So I asked him, were you too young when you married Carly Simon? Were you both too young, or were you both too caught up in the I think lifestyle? I was. I think I was. Uh, I was too young. Not necessarily in terms of my uh, the amount of time that I've been on the planet, but just in terms of my own development. I was too unconscious. Was that the contributory factor to the break of the marriage? I don't know. You can't say. Can't. Can't say. Did you learn from the failure to uh, reapply any to to your current marriage? I hope so. It was a, a learning process at the end, a, a painful process, but a, a positive in the end. Uh, I, I, yes, I, I like to think so. Sure. Are you still friends? Uh, am I friends with Carly? Yeah. Uh, no, I wouldn't say that we were friends. No, I, I tend to want to have as little contact with her as possible, and I assume that she, the feelings uh, mutual. We communicate somewhat about the kids, and and that's it. Yeah. It ended up that bitterly. I wouldn't say it's terribly bitter. I just, I just think that that uh, that it ended, and that, that it's that's. Uh, I I prefer to have very limited contact. With it would strike a lot of people as as quite sad. Those people who had kind of an idealized vision of 
romantic lovers in the early 70s and held up certain couples who were in the public eye as Christ, if we could be like them or whatever. Yeah, well, that's their problem. Like, yeah. That's their problem. With their idea. I'm not interested in... Uh, and, and uh, distorted in living, perceptions. I'm not interested. Well, uh, distorted perceptions are interesting. <laughs> I'm not interested in living my life uh, to, in, in any way to to accommodate people's uh, distorted perceptions of what uh, romantic love is or should be in other people. Although uh, uh, the song "Never Die Young," you know, is uh, is definitely uh, a myth, and uh, a song is about a person who is mythologizing uh, a couple. Right. That's what the song is about. Somebody who has a huge investment in, in this couple being what they feel they never can be. Yeah, and you feel that many kind of fans or admirers of people can push those pressures on couples who are in the public eye? Oh, yeah, um, uh, to a certain extent. I think it's, uh, I don't think life takes place in the public eye. Yeah, and it can be damaging if it does. Um, yeah, just a drag. I don't think damaging really is what you'd call it either. Well, there are those couples though who do, do claim that the kind of the fact that they had to live out the love affair in the spotlight, the glare of cameras or the or, or, television cameras or whatever, didn't help. I think it must be very distracting. Your relationship with Carly wasn't like that? No, I think ours was like that. Was like that. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I, I'm reluctant to talk about Carly. She can talk about herself. Did she talk about you? I don't know. I don't read right. her press. <laughs> if ever I heard a self-conscious laugh, that was it. Though 15 minutes later, after the interview ended, Taylor clarified one reason he was reluctant to talk about Carly Simon. He felt I should have focused also on his wife at the time, Catherine Walker. Okay, I can end it there unless you feel there was one point you particularly wanted to mention and the get hasn't asked me anything. No, you've covered everything. it all. You've covered it all. <laughs> Have I? I think so. so. Sorry about that, Graham, but there you go, 6.45 I didn't, on the dot. I didn't get a chance to mention that. We, uh, un oh, yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. Uh, uh, you, we, we talk a lot about what has happened to me in the past uh, 10 years and, uh, and in my career and stuff, and we didn't really spend any time mentioning uh, my... my uh, appreciation and gratitude for my wife, you know. And I, we mentioned a lot about Carly and stuff, but that stuff is... No, well, the, I tried... 10, 15 years ago, I tried to you know, lead you Carly. into that. And, uh, and, and I, okay. I, uh, I think a lot of where I am now and a lot of what I'm... Well, yeah, that's right, you did mention. No, I tried to lead Catherine you into it by saying, times. did you learn from that for your current marriage? And right. I thought, and then when you didn't go into that, I'm sorry, I, I, just, want to I was talk. just aware of trying to close down the subject um, a little bit. And Carly. And Carly, yeah. Yeah, no, but then but I in, thought, well, if you don't talk about Carly, maybe he doesn't want to talk about it, so I didn't push that. Right. Well, but if you do, and, I and will in integrate fact, it. In fact, I don't, I, I agree with you that uh, that a, uh, um, a discussion of one's uh, a private life can, uh, can be can be detrimental to it. And I don't, and for those reasons, I don't like to talk about Catherine and my private life with her. But in, in, right. in terms of, of balancing it off and, and acknowledging how important she is to me, you know, the fact is that, that uh, I have no idea where I'd be without her. And I really, uh, you know, I, I'm profoundly, uh, God, I, I, profoundly grateful is the wrong way to put it. Really, uh, it sounds like you've just received an award yeah, or something. Really. Yeah, really. <laughs> but the, the, the what is an is award? That, that uh, I depend uh, amazingly on. Her and the family. Is the family unit of central importance now? Um, by the family, do you mean my siblings and my mother yeah. and father? No, it's not, really. Uh, I think that uh, Catherine is my family, as things stand now, and my children. Right. The second family. So that is over the past 10 or 15 years? Yeah. She's given you that kind of... Well, she, she, Catherine and I have been together for uh, seven years. Seven years. And uh, it's... Uh, what, James, give me another quote for Profoundly Grateful. Okay, I can't help with that. All right, I will. Hang on. Then, then I'll leave it. I will. At that point, as James Taylor reflected on a better quote to give me about Catherine, I said to Graham, who I think was his press agent, 
and who had sat in at the end of the interview and said he enjoyed what he'd heard. Well, there were certain areas I was uncomfortable about covering, but I, I have a kind of, I have owe something to readers who are going to expect things. Sure. So I thought if we could just go at them, get them out of the way, and then move on to it. But I think we did go into a good analysis of whatever life forces and things like that that was different. It was different for me. I thought so like too. That. No, it yeah. seemed quite, quite unique. Yeah, okay. Um, Maybe we put it in, in the Philosopher's Monthly yeah. magazine or something. <laughs> is there a Philosopher's Monthly? Is there or isn't there? Is there? If there isn't, there well, should be. Yeah. Right. No, I, 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 I don't know what to say about... Uh, profoundly um, grateful. Prof you know. Well, maybe it would just be enough to understand, to say I don't know where I would be. You know, yeah, that's even, right. you, know yeah, that's you don't right. have well, to you know. go into a kind of almost melodramatic phrase. Yeah, that's right. Good for you. Okay. Unless you think of something really good. Really good. good. You yeah, get that up with me. I was like, oh, yeah. it goes. Thanks for listening and good night. Hi, Joe Jackson here again. I thank you for listening to this edition of the Joe Jackson Interviews podcast. More can be heard on my website, joejacksoninterviewer.com.